spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film Arsenic and Old Lace from 1944 with my very lovely guest, Christina Rickert. Hello, Christina. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So... This time around, we watched the film Arsenic and Old Lace because it's close to Halloween and we wanted that beautiful, spooky feeling. Um, Christina, what did you think? Oh my gosh, I love this movie so much. The last time I saw it, I think I was like 12 or 13 because my parents were like, you have to see this movie. And of course, at the time I was like, 1944, you know, here I am a kid of the 90s, like whatever. And it is hilarious and it holds up I, I loved it. It really does. It holds up beautifully. I feel like it's the perfect blend of like screwball comedy, but with some some spookiness, some like thrills and haunting in it, which is so much appreciated. It's a great Halloween movie. They even tell you up front, I think that first card says something like, this is a Halloween movie from Brooklyn where anything can happen. And I was like, oh, this is solid. It's so smart. It's got a very like clever, winking, wry sense of humor. So for the viewers at home, I would love to give you a plot synopsis of this movie. So, Cary Grant is the main character. He plays a guy named Mortimer Brewster, which is such a great movie name. I love it. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Very good screwball comedy name. And he is gonna get married at City Hall, which is a big deal because he's a drama critic and a book author. Uh, that writes about why you shouldn't get married and how much he hates marriage. So he's like the bachelor playboy that never wants to get married and he's getting married. And um, two reporters kind of catch him in the act and comment on it. But he does decide, even though the reporters are there, that he wants to go through with it. And he's marrying Priscilla Lane, who is the most adorable, charming, little, lovely lady. And yeah, they have great chemistry. They're going to get married. They go back to his family home in Brooklyn to tell his two sweet little lovely old aunts about it. And then while he's home, he realizes his aunts have been murdering people and burying them in the basement. Um, and they're not doing it out of meanness. They think they're doing it out of charity. These lonely old men come to their house looking for a room to rent. And they feel so badly for these old men that they basically, it's like assisted suicide without consent, so it is murder. <laughs> um, they murder them with elderberry wine, and then they bury them in the basement, and they can do this. They have the manpower to do this because they have, uh, it's their nephew, right? It's Teddy's Mortimer's brother. Yes, that's yes. what I, I'm pretty sure. They never like blatantly say it, I don't think, but yeah, I think it's his brother. Yeah, because it's like there's Jonathan Brewster, who's the bad brother, and then there's, we don't even know his first name, Blank Brewster that plays Teddy, and uh, yeah, it's either his like cousin or something like, it's his cousin or his brother, but he thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt. He genuinely believes this. He is 100% mentally, what's the what's the PC word for this? Mentally insane? Uh, he has an altered state of reality. He has maybe? an altered state of reality. That's a great way of putting it. Um, and he helps the ants. They tell him he's uh, doing the Panama Canal and, and these people have died of yellow fever. And it all seems like a very sweet operation. Uh, things do go awry. Uh, Cary Grant at first is trying to cover this up and figure this situation out. Uh, he and his wife, I was going to say fiance, get into a little scuffle because she has no idea what's going on and he's freaking out and he just wants to get her out of the house. So they're kind of fighting a little bit. And then his long lost brother, who is absolutely terrifying and who is 100% a serial killer, chooses this moment to come home. And so you've got this balance of like, his brother's a serial killer who has killed 12 potentially 13 people, and his aunts are also serial killers who have killed 11, potentially 12 people. And in the end, it's happy. The aunts and Teddy all go away to a, what do they call a rest home. They, they called it a, sana it's a sanitarium. Yeah, and then someone was like, it's a nut house. And he was like, we prefer the term rest home. So they all get committed and go away. And um, Mortimer and Priscilla get to ride off into the sunset. And um, his brother, who is a violent criminal, is captured. Yep. 
And and at the end too, uh, they discover Mortimer's not actually blood related to any yes. <laughs> And this is very important, especially in the 40s when they were worried about like genetics and stuff. Yes. yes. In the end, Mortimer was adopted, essentially. And yes, he's the son of a sea cook. He is not related to these people. His genes are good. And we all breathe a sigh of relief, right? As the audience. Yep. So that's the movie. It's based on a play. Uh, I think it probably sticks pretty close to the play. I've actually never seen the play performed live, but this film feels like a play. It mainly takes place in one setting, and the way it unfolds really plays like a play. So I would say if you're watching it, it feels a little slow, but you get into it. And I do love, it's a play that's very aware of itself, which I don't feel happened a lot in the past. It's kind of like The Office a little bit. We've got... Cary Grant breaking the fourth wall with us and like giving us face. His facial expressions are like just amazing. Like it feels like a movie that could have been made last year. Yeah, his physical you know? comedy is so good. He's so funny. His reactions to things were just making me bust up laughing. He's hilarious. Yeah, there's actually a great quote about him that I found about him and why he was so good at comedy. All right, Cary Grant. He had a broad appeal as a handsome, suave actor who did not take himself too seriously, able to play with his own dignity in comedies without sacrificing it entirely. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. He's so silly, but still has dignity. This movie's great. I think it really showcases his skills for sure. You kind of see him in a new light too, because I'm used to his more serious roles. When it's so interesting you bring that up, because he went through such a, a transformation over time with what he was known for and what he could do. I feel like when he first started out, it was like with Marlena Dietrich and it was with Mae West and they were kind of the stars and he was like this sexy but not really a lot of personality straight man that was in there. And then they realized how good he was at comedy and so like in the late 30s and early 40s he does all of these, these comedies, these screwball comedies that are really great. And then he kind of gets into Penny Serenade, does a little more drama. And so by the 50s, he's full on Hitchcock. He's doing suspense. <laughs> he's doing it all. And then he ends up retiring in 66. He kind of feels like he's not as handsome anymore. And he doesn't want to continue acting and having people watch him kind of grow old, uh, which is sad. I feel like we're robbed because he didn't want to keep going. So we had talked on the show before about how he had five marriages. And one of them seemed pretty successful to Betsy Drake. Uh, it lasted for a long time. They both were into the same things. But when he married Diane Cannon, it was around the time he retired. And he sounded kind of like mentally abusive towards her. I'm not trying to make excuse for like any behavior, but it, it bothered me. It does bother me that he could be abusive because he's so charming and lovable. But I was realizing like, oh, he was married to Diane when he was retiring. He had given up this career. I'm wondering how much of what he was trying to do to control her was a result of him not being able to act anymore or feeling like he wasn't allowed to act anymore. I just thought that was really interesting. I was thinking that, again, not excusing abuse at all. Like, that sucks that he did that shit to her. Fuck you, Cary Grant. But at the same time, I'm watching this movie going like, this is so fun. You're really charming. That mindset, I don't know, of, yeah, an actor who may maybe he didn't really want to retire, but just kind of thought, you know, my looks are fading and I don't know if I can do it anymore. Well, and it's like what George Clooney is doing now. George Clooney was kind of like, I'm stepping away from acting because I don't want to, like, age on camera and have that shock people. But I'm like, don't pull a Cary Grant. Like, yeah. no, keep going. I feel like George Clooney is the modern Cary Grant. I think he's the most similar in our modern world to Cary Grant. I could see that, definitely. His yeah. more comedic roles are probably my favorite. Well, and they're both like, yeah, very handsome, dignified, but can be silly. Back to the film. Um, I love how this film looks. It's so, like, stylish. I don't quite know how to describe it, but a lot of black and white films don't have the cinematography this film had. It focuses so much on light and dark and shadow and the way it utilizes the scary elements, the way that they literally turn off the lights whenever the bodies come out and we just see the outline of the dead bodies. Like, that's so cool. Pretty awesome. I yeah. know there's like nothing that's like outwardly gory or gross or anything about the movie. It's very like, everything's kind of under wraps, but the effect I think is the same. 
for the time, I think it was really witty because it does call itself out all the time. Cary Grant constantly breaking the fourth wall. They make comments about how stupid things are in plays, like, oh, that really dumb scene where the guy is sitting in the chair and the villain's behind him waiting to tie him up. And he uses the cords from the curtains. And like, that's what's really happening. Like, Johnny, the idea to go exactly. to. The self-awareness is beautiful. So I feel like that was unique for the time. But then I also feel like what was unique for the time was the darkness of it. The way that a lot of films didn't really go there in comedy. I feel like you were either a noir and you were gritty or you're a comedy and you're silly. And this really blends the two. Like, there are murders. This is dark. We don't totally know what's going to happen to Cary Grant or anyone else. Um, So I really love that because that doesn't normally happen. It makes this film more unique. The entertaining aspect of it with like, yeah, the mix of comedy with the macabre. That was a great word, macabre. Macabre. <laughs> great word. Um, so yeah, I really love that about this film. It's a, like, it's a great Halloween film. Can we mention one of the main characters though, being the cemetery between the bride's house and <laughs> Cary Grant's aunt's house? Yes, I love that. It's great because the first thing we see about Brooklyn, they're like, so they they talk about Brooklyn on the first card and like anything can happen in Brooklyn. And then we see what Brooklyn is like, which is we see the Dodgers playing and then there's a play that's called that someone doesn't agree with and everyone breaks out into a rough, raucous like fight. So clearly Brooklyn, oh man, it's crazy over there. And then they have a card that's like back in United States proper. That's what they called it. Back in United States proper, which just means Manhattan. We have our scene with Mortimer and Priscilla Lane getting married. I can't remember her character's name in this. Elaine. Elaine Harper. I took notes too. Thanks, Christina. (laughs) Such a good guest. So yeah, I love that they really set that up of like, Brooklyn's this crazy place and like Manhattan's normal. Brooklyn's crazy. And then, um, yeah, when when they head out to the other part of Brooklyn, that's clearly not this raucous baseball stadium. The first thing we do see is a cemetery. And we realize that the ants live right next to a cemetery. And yes, across the way from the cemetery is where Elaine Harper, a.k.a. Love of Mortimer Brewster's life lives. So yeah, that was a great addition to all of it. And we know things aren't normal in the beginning. When we first enter their home, it looks very beautiful, really cozy, just like a normal home. And they're sweet old ladies. They're sweet they're old ladies. Charity to the, the police, they're giving these toys for, for needy children. And what a great setup. The way that they're explained to us is through the police officers. So there's like one police officer that's older that's showing around the new young guy on the beat. And that's where we get all our exposition. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And him saying, you know, it's going to be a little crazy over there with Teddy Roosevelt blowing his horn, but that's not the only thing that happens. These ladies are so kind. But yeah. when we enter, we see, I don't even think he talks about Teddy yet because we see Teddy playing the piano and we think he's normal and we think it's a nice, normal home. And the first time we know it's not is when someone else sneezes and Teddy goes, oh, am I sick? And they were like, nope, that was someone else. And that's the first time you go like, oh, wait, oh, this isn't normal. This is weird. He's an oddball. He's got to be one of my favorite characters. He's great. Every time he goes up the stairs. Charge! Although he did it so loud, and I was watching it so early this morning that I was worried my neighbors would hear it through my walls, so I would have to, like, turn it down every time he would go to the stairs. I'd be like, shh, be quiet. Yep, yep. (laughs) So much louder than everything else. So those actors, oh, this is super interesting, actually. So those actors were all um, from the stage play. So the stage play was a huge hit in New York. And this movie ended up being released three years after um, it was filmed. Oh, wow. Because the producers made a contract where they said they wouldn't release the film until the play closed, but the play kept running. So they couldn't release the movie till way later. The two aunts were from the, the Broadway play, and so was the guy that played Teddy. It's Josephine Hall, who was also in Harvey a couple of years later, Gina Dare, and John Alexander, he played Teddy. So they reprised their roles from the production. They had to take eight weeks off from the production to shoot because that's how long this movie took. But one super interesting thing that I wish they had done in the film was Boris Karloff played the guy that looks like Boris Karloff in the play, but he was an investor in the show. So he couldn't leave because he was the star of the show. So people were coming to see Boris Karloff. So he couldn't take the time off if the other people were taking the time off too. And I feel like it's such a missed opportunity. Like, I wish they had just shut down the play for a couple weeks. Yeah. Just do his parts. Yeah. Yes. 
Because how hilarious would that be? They keep saying Raymond Massey, who is Jonathan Brewster in this movie, looks like Boris Karloff, and it could have been Boris Karloff. That's pretty cute, though, too, to, to keep saying, well, that guy looks just like Boris Karloff when Boris Karloff played him in the play. Boris Karloff, for people at home who don't know who that is, he played Frankenstein in all the old horror films, and he was in a lot of horror movies. So uh, Jonathan Brewster, the evil brother of Mortimer Brewster, looks like Frankenstein is essentially what they're saying over and over. And it makes him so mad. And the reason he looks like Frankenstein is because Peter Lorre is his plastic surgeon who travels with him and puts new faces on him so that he can escape for his various murders. And he saw a Boris Karloff film. And when he was drunk, he made Jonathan Brewster look like Boris Karloff which is just classic. Here's the question I have. Like, were these face transplants or or was he just like reworking the facial structure to make him look different? Or were like, were these the people that he killed? Was he putting those faces on? Oh my off? God. Or is that, is that too creepy? Maybe that's no, too No, that's creepy. wonderful. I love that I'm like, that's that, wonderful. That's what was going through my head. I was like, wait, so is he killing these people to then change his identity every whatever many months? Christina, you are so smart. That didn't even occur to me. Because there's actually that really sweet scene between him and the doctor where they almost look like lovers, like they really care for each other, where the doctor's going over his face and he's like, I'm going to take this piece from your nose and move it up. And then I'm (laughs) right? Um, And also, I should mention, this movie blends or like blurs morality because we do want the doctor to get away because he does seem like a sweet man. Like we know he's participated in murders with Jonathan, but he seems coerced by Jonathan. And does seem kind of sweet, so we're relieved he they gets have away. An abusive, weird relationship going on. Yeah, they really do. You can tell there was a lot of abuse in that house. I want to get back to this note of like the sinisterness of this house, but what you had said was so good, so I want to focus on that for a minute. Okay, so you think that maybe he was killing these people to steal their faces and like use the flesh from that or the actual face to get away? It's so fascinating but is that backwards because i mean i don't know like it was he killing people that were like maybe going against his business dealings or something and then maybe he had to kill other people to then use their faces to get away so maybe that's why his number was so high i don't know you get the sense he really likes killing people and torturing people though oh yeah what do they call it the melbourne method the Melbourne method. No, not the Melbourne method. And I love no, that the doctor's <laughs> he's like, it's going to take two hours. Like, he's going to be dead anyway. Can't you just kill him like a normal person? Like, oh, oh no, not the Melbourne method. And then as the audience member, you're just left to your own imagination to think of what does that mean? Oh, oh my well, God. It clearly involved a lot of knives because they, they tie him up, gag him, and they're like, if you move, you will be choked by this gag. It was a little bit kinky i'm wondering if there are people at home being like "Ooh, i could try that later idea idea (laughs) um but yeah it's definitely creepy when they talk about what he would do to mortimer as a kid yeah let's just go here so they mention a lot of abuse in this home it sounded like the grandfather was crazy he had all these poisons and experiments like a mad scientist kind of thing laboratory right he burned acid onto that one the one aunt's neck and that's why she wears high collars right they don't explain that and then jonathan's super fucked up like he's tying up mortimer and putting needles under his nails oh yeah oh god Ooh, yeah it's horrible hearing that, I was like oh no 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 glad there's no flashback scenes yeah and then everyone else in this house is also pretty mentally unstable like the ants while very sweet are murdering people and totally justifying it. And Teddy, he thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt, very much so. And I did love the line so much about, it was towards the beginning where they were saying something like, um, have you ever tried to convince him he was anyone else? And they were like, well, he's so happy being Teddy Roosevelt. And isn't that what's important? That he's happy? And I was like, yeah. That was like kind of forward thinking. It was, just let him be who he is. He's not hurting nobody. Exactly. Just his annoying trumpet. That's that's the only thing. That's the only thing. And take that away from him or make it silent. Or tell him he already blew it. There you go. Problem solved. Problem solved. But when they try to tell him to be George Washington, they say he hid under his covers and wouldn't pretend to be anyone for days. That was so sad. Oh, man. So I do love that this movie kind of makes the point of like, if you're mentally unstable, you probably need help. Like, that's kind of the point of this movie, because it seems like it doesn't matter if you're mentally unstable and you're good or mentally unstable and you're bad. They both result in, like, murder. 
Yeah. Yeah, mental health is important. You should get help. One of the things that made me a little like off put was like the whole drive behind Mortimer trying to get Teddy into the sanitarium. Yeah. Yeah, the the whole driving force behind that was really just finding at least the first body, I think, was the thing that kicked him off to be like, "Oh, well, we got to commit him clearly." But even he he still is like running around trying to get all these signatures to commit Teddy after he finds out that the ants are the ones who were killing everybody. So it's like, well, uh, calm down, slow it down a little bit. What are you doing? So I think, because that had crossed my mind as well. And so what I think he was trying to do was pin it on Teddy. That was messed up. Yes, of course it's messed up. Of course it is. That's why I was watching that. Like, wait, 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 wait. Let's hit pause here. What's happening? Yeah, he's going to pin it all on Teddy. Especially if they, like, grew up together and they're kids. But he knows that Teddy will be safe because Teddy clearly is insane. I, again, I don't know if that's the term. I'm sorry if it's not. So he knows he's insane. So he's already going to be going to... Oh God, Happy Dale? It's Happy Dale. He's already going to be going to Happy Dale. So if he's going to go already and like he's not going to go to jail, I might as well pin these murders on him. Especially when ants have such a twisted sense of morality. Like he even confronts them and he's like, well, but wait, you're, you you know you're murdering people, right? Like they, they don't know that you're giving them arsenic and this this arsenic cocktail. We're, we're doing a good thing here. How sometimes they logically know that they should keep it from the police and other times they don't. They're like, it's a secret, Teddy. But then when the police are there, they're still like, no, there are 13 bodies. So I'm like, wait, they probably don't entirely understand. I guess you can't really rationalize uh, when people are a little off their rocker. I do love, though, his first reaction when he sees the body. It is so spot on. He just got married. He's so happy. He's connecting with his aunts and telling them all this wonderful stuff. And then he lifts up the window seat, sees the body, shuts it. It's such a solid moment. Whenever he goes bug-eyed, you know? (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's hilarious. Who played Mortimer in the stage play? That's a great question. I actually didn't look it up. I don't know if it was anyone famous. We talked about like the abuse in the household. Thank goodness, again, Mortimer did not take on the abuse of the household. I love that like, if you grew up in an abusive household, you either become a murderer, insane, or a drama critic. Those were the three options, that's it. Yep, and I love that everyone he meets tries to get him to read their play. It was the cop and Mr. Witherspoon. Yes. I wrote that down, I was like, oh my gosh, this is getting ridiculous. Oh, we also are gonna have to talk about the bullshit of like the white cop. So the cops, there's murders being done right before the very eyes, but because like two nice old white ladies are doing them, they're like, what murders? There's nothing wrong here. So white privilege, run amok. Just that's what's happening. But the one cop who is the playwright, he's also in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and he plays Gooper. He plays like the obnoxious brother. And so that's all I could think about when I was watching this. He's really great at playing like a goobery kind of guy, like not totally with it. He sees Mortimer tied up and gagged and doesn't think to help him at all. He just kind of glances over there and he's like, oh, it's a normal Saturday night, whatever. Just some fun family games. Yeah, and starts reenacting the play for him while he's bound and gagged because that's a great time to do that to a drama person. And why would you want to share it with a drama critic? That's what makes no sense to me. He's just going to criticize you and you're probably not good. That just seems silly. Like he's not another playwright, he's a critic. Whatever. They all think it's their way in. For me, I loved the the recurring thing with the taxi driver because they were holding the taxi to then take them to Niagara Falls for their honeymoon. And this poor cab driver, every time they're going back and forth in between the houses, the guy's like, well, wait, wait, your tab is now, what, $25 at one point, which- $22.50. What is that? What is that in 1944 or 1941? I believe it's $12 million. I'm pretty sure. That's a lot of money. Five more dollars, you can like buy this cab or whatever. Poor guy. I felt frustrated for him. I was like, no, just tell him to go away. Just pay him the money. I did too. I was deeply concerned for him. I want to make sure he gets paid. That's the only thing they didn't settle in the end. I don't want him to be the next victim. I want him to get home safely to his family. Right? Well, this, you're right, this is kind of a sassy ending because Mortimer is running and carrying his bride. He throws her over his shoulder and is running to her house and, like, throws her in the window. And I'm like, wait, so are you guys going to, like, have sex right now or are you still planning to go to Niagara Falls? As a viewer, I need to know. Right. Is the cab still waiting? 
I mean, it probably was at that point. I don't remember. I imagine he waited all morning if they did decide. No, you know what? I really do think that they decided to go to Niagara Falls. I think that they did. I, I would hope that they did. Because then the whole it. night was a waste. Yes. In my mind. Also, if he could have just explained to her what the fuck was going on, she wouldn't have kept showing up. The number one rule in a marriage is communication. <laughs> that did not happen right off the bat maybe she could help you like as we saw in hocus pocus last night that girl is the one who comes up with all the brilliant schemes to kill the witches so maybe if you include her in your scheme you will not only save her life but she can help you i think too it's funny because like early on in a relationship well by the time you get to a marriage hopefully you already know the other person's crazy but early on in a relationship you're like trying to hide the craziness and i think for him he was probably like Oh, I can't, I can't show her that my family's clearly bonkers. But at the same time, like, she's in my way. And, like, I have stuff to do. I have to commit Teddy. This is true. He did have a lot on his mind. But we can't criticize him. Because as he was criticizing the people in the plays, he was doing those same things. So I imagine in his situation, I would not act very well either. I would not know what to do. It was a lot at once. That's a lot for one person for a single night. Um, I do love that the way he like shuts her up at the end, she ends up hearing about the 13 bodies in the basement when there's the big showdown with all the cops. And then she runs down and sees the bodies in the basement. Mortimer's just squared everything away. Everything's going exactly right. She's about to ruin his plan by screaming and talking about the bodies. So he kisses her into submission. And I just want to be like, please, men, don't try this at home, please. It comedically was very lovely and funny. Especially when she's like, Mortimer. Like, that's a great way of saying his name when you feel all sexy-like. But yeah, he he kisses her quiet. I do also love the one police officer. He's like the chief of police that's berating his officers for not recognizing the Boris Karloff thing. And then he gets the audio about like, this is what his sidekick apprentice looks like. The sidekick apprentice is right in front of his face. And he's like, thanks, doctor. Have a great night. Keep going like five foot three bug eyes like super super descriptive and we're like looking at him and he was he looking at the camera at that point he had closed his eyes and was facing the camera yep all the boxes (laughs) he doesn't even let him talk so he can't hear the german accent he just says thanks doctor (laughs) really get out of here i'm glad he got to get away though because me too he didn't deserve to well that's debatable he probably did deserve to go to prison but he did but it was like kind of an abusive thing where he wasn't totally it was under duress that he was performing these surgeries it was in fear for his life it was a pretty decent job he did making him look like boris karloff and like only having a few little stitches and scars on his face pretty decent for the time i agree we don't know the plastic surgery of the time but i would like to think it looks great It reminded me a lot, there's this Humphrey Bogart movie called Dark Passage, which I enjoyed a lot, which has that premise of, like, someone who's being hunted by the police gets a new face. So I kept thinking about that and how cool that movie was. Maybe that will be the other double feature. Either that or Face Off. Or Face Off, which I've somehow never seen in my life. Um, I know I should probably rectify that, but it's, it's just something I've never managed to actually see. It's bonkers. I was thinking about how Peter Laurie plays a creeper constantly, but is like such a lovable creeper. His sheer size. He's just a small guy. So maybe if he was like a towering guy, it would be a little more intimidating or something. He's so sympathetic. But I think it's because you like somehow see the humanity and fear behind his eyes. So even when he's like in M playing a killer of children or like in this when he's an accomplice to murder or like he always, there's something slightly sympathetic about him. And you're like, why am I sympathizing with you? You're not a good man. Even in the other movies. I mean, he's in Maltese Falcon. He's in so many classics. He's in Casablanca. And he never plays like a great guy, but you always still really love him. Also, we need to talk about the screenwriters. Oh my God, they're fascinating. I don't know anything about them. So you, you tell me everything. Julius J. Epstein and Philip G. Epstein. They were identical twins. Oh my goodness. They wrote this and they wrote Casablanca with Howard Koch. They're apparently really good at adapting things um, because Casablanca was adapted from an unpublished play called Everybody Comes to Rick's. And then this was adapted from a play. I'm glad it wasn't titled that. Casablanca's much better. Everybody Comes to Rick's. Yes, that's in the movie, but it doesn't need to be the name of the movie. 
Just like this. I don't think they ever say arsenic and old lace, but the point gets across. Also, it's not just arsenic. Can I point that out? It was a full-on cocktail of arsenic, strychnine, and cyanide. Thank you for pointing that out. Growing up, I thought it was only arsenic the whole time because the title. And then she's like, oh, you know, in, in the wine, I just mix a little bit of the, the arsenic, strychnine, and cyanide. I'm like, whoa, okay, that's a lot. How do they not taste it? Also, why didn't they call this movie Arsenic and Elderberry? I bet you there's like a reason. I'm sure something and old lace is an expression or something that we don't know because we're just we millennials. But Arsenic and Old Lace, it's a great title. But yeah, you're like, where'd they get the old lace? I know that implies older women. It's a great title. Arsenic and doilies. <laughs> arsenic and cats. Although there was only one cat and it wasn't even a black cat. Super lame super lame they should have gotten a black cat they had black cats in the little title cards which were so goddamn cute it's true the title cards are so festive and fallish they're they're morning outfits by the way when the ants come down and he says what is this a double blackout i don't know why that makes me laugh so much i was like that's a dumb joke but i was laughing my butt off they looked fabulous and i love that they like kept time for the costume changes even in the screenplay yes they give Mortimer a break. Mortimer gets time off stage and it translates to the screen. And then same with the old ladies. They have time to change their costumes and look fabulous in their like decked out funeral gear with the veils. Oh, the veils and everything. My goodness. Oh, back to the, the screenplay people. I need to tell you about them. They were identical twins. They wrote a ton of cool movies together. They wrote Casablanca. That's all you really need to know. They also wrote Four Daughters, which Priscilla Lane was in. So she is in this too. Like I th there's like a connection between people in their movies and this. And like Peter Lorre was in Casablanca. He's in this. Yeah. Um, but anyway, one of them, I think it was Philip died. He died really young. And it like really tore his brother apart because they loved each other so much. They were like really close. They were identical twins. They were best buds. They were writing partners. And his brother died on his own without his twin brother. He ended up writing a bunch of comedies. He writes The Tender Trap with Frank Sinatra and Debbie Reynolds. He writes, well, this isn't a comedy. He writes Fanny, the, the French one about the girl that gets pregnant with um, Leslie Caron. He writes Light in the Piazza, also adapted from book, but I love that movie. Send Me No Flowers with Doris Day. So like, he writes all these movies without his brother. With his brother, he writes very good movies, deeper movies like Brothers Karamazov. Well, the last time I up here is I don't love but it's a little it's melodramatic we've got Mr. Skeffington we've got romance on the high seas and then the brother dies in 1952 and then he goes off and writes comedies it's like without his brother he couldn't approach the deeper things Aww. yeah after that I'm sure after that tragedy you just want a bunch of comedy but that was fascinating because I saw their names and was like they're obviously brothers maybe there's more there there was so much more there can we talk about the incompetence of the police because <laughs> now that we're here I'm like, what a progressive movie this actually is, because it does show the incompetence of the police when it comes to white supremacy and crime. I'm not, like, I don't think that they necessarily meant to do this, but obviously in our country today, we have a problem with police brutality and white supremacy and things like that. And so I think it's really interesting to watch this movie now and to be like, oh yeah, they're not even looking at these white people committing all these damn crimes. They were going to let Boris Karloff go. I know. Well, and, and they're nice white old ladies who do a lot of charity for their community. And I think a lot of people like that, you know, maybe richer people who are philanthropic or whatever, were more keen to look the other way because, you know, they're helping out. They're good on the surface. And I guess I would be probably confused too. I wouldn't suspect them necessarily. There's that. And then I also noticed, so I was talking about we might have a segment called like, what holds up? So some things that were cool that I noticed in the beginning, a lot of times in classic movies, if there's a director that's a little progressive or forward thinking, they would try to include more ethnicities in a film in a positive light if they could. Because a lot of times in the Hayes Code, there were certain things, oh my God, this movie almost breaks the Hayes Code because the Hayes Code had a lot of super fucked up things about it. And one of those things was you couldn't have um, interracial marriage or like an interracial couple and when they're waiting in the beginning to get married there are first of all the room of people getting married is packed and it's diverse there are people of all ethnicities you know 
it's so weird that you say that because like I didn't even notice that. Yeah, well, because it's like very subtle, but like a lot of progressive directors try to put things like that in there. And the couple that's in front of them in line was an interracial couple. It was um, an Asian woman and a Jewish man, which I was like, ooh, that might be a stereotype that I don't know we should hit. Oh, that's right. I was going to make a note of that because when the, the Asian woman turns around, they do kind of that racist uh, whatever music overlay. Oh my God, I didn't even notice that, but I'm sure it was there. I'm sure it was there. But she winks at Priscilla Lane as if to say, we've caught him. We've snagged him. We bagged ourselves some men. And that's what Priscilla Lane does to the ants when she's trying to communicate with them that she was secretly married to Mortimer. She winks at them. So I guess from now on, if I'm a woman winking, that just means, hey, I've just snagged me a man. Huh. That's the secret code, Sarah. I'm surprised you didn't know it yet. I didn't know it. I gotta be really careful how I wink, I guess. Um, So yeah, it's a weird mix of like, yes, that's kind of racist, but also at least they were trying to show and portray people of color they have a, a black couple who looks intelligent and they're not trying to make them look like any sort of subservient humans. And I was just like, okay, at least we like have a that. melting pot. Yeah. And they got the marriage licenses in Manhattan. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, they did. In the, you mean in the United States proper? Yes. I'm sorry. That's what I meant. The lower 48 where, where Brooklyn is not a part of. They're all animals over there. Everyone fights. It's just so funny to watch it through the lens of today because, you know, I lived in Manhattan for a year and Brooklyn, of course, had already been super gentrified by the time I got there. My cousins all live in Brooklyn and their apartment is beautiful. And yes, it's an incredibly gentrified area and neighborhood. So it is so funny to hear people talk shit about Brooklyn and how dangerous it is. And even the ants at the end are like, the area has gotten a little rougher. <laughs> or she says something of like, maybe we should go to Happy Dale because Brooklyn isn't what it used to be. It's so strange. Um, I will say there were two more comments that did not hold up. One was when they talked about how you knew the one man was crazy because you know how Indians were scalping white people. What did they call them? Settlers? Or I forget what the fuck they called the white people. Well, he yes. was a white person who scalped the Indians. And I was like, ooh, stop, stop. Doesn't hold up. Please stop. Right. And then there was also a line that the ants made about, like, foreigners. Like, he can't be buried with a foreigner. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I took a note of that because it was uh, Spinalzo, right? Martha says, Spinalzo. And Abby goes, I knew he was a foreigner. I was like, whoa, whoa. What do, what do you mean? What do you mean? Kind of xenophobic, a little bit racist. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. They're in their bubble of murder. Murdering white people. Like they're in that bubble. They also had a lot of digs about like, what was it? Methodist versus like, or Presbyterians in there. I don't know. It was some sort of like, whatever Christian sect like yeah there was in the beginning when they were talking the cop was talking to the reverend and he was like father i mean reverend and i was like "Ooh, i bet you that's like a subtle christian like separation dig thing that i don't even get again we've mentioned this on the podcast i'm jewish but also i just don't know anyway yeah that was really interesting too we judge this person by their level of christianity and this person by that level and and i don't even get it i mean i grew up presbyterian i'm nothing now but like Watching the movie, I'm like, wait, th- these seem like subtle digs at different uh, different white <laughs> Christian beliefs, but... Well, even, like, the stereotype of the Irish cop was there. Like, there's so many... Yeah, I feel like he was trying to do an accent, too, that did not work properly. It was slight. It was like, I am originally from Ireland, but I've been in New York a long time. Here's my accent! And then uh, the guy who came in, would he have been the chief? Yes, I think he was the chief of police. Was he doing a New York accent or is that actor from New York, I wonder? That's a great question. I don't remember. He's been in a lot of stuff. There are a lot of really great character actors in this piece who have been in like a billion different things. You know what I mean? Was it Mr. Witherspoon? That's Edward Everett Horton. So of course I know who he is because he is in several Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. Therefore, I know him very well. (laughs) I love him. Whenever he shows up, I am just so happy about it. It because he's always kind of the bumbling rich man in um, all the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers films. And when I say all, I mean like three or four, but still, he's great in those. And he was also in the front page, which was His Girl Friday before it was His Girl Friday. It was like the original version of His Girl Friday before they included a woman and made it a billion times better. They're all character actors that have been in so many things. You're like, oh, you were in this. Oh, you were in that. And then Raymond Massey was in East of Eden and A Matter of Life and Death, which is a really cool movie too. So he was in some cool flicks as well. Oh, I do want to let you know too. Did you know the original person that they wanted to be in this film was Bob Hope playing the Cary Grant as Mortimer? 
Yes. Isn't that surprising? I don't think I could see that. Yeah. They wanted Bob Hope and then they wanted Jack Benny. And then they were like, Cary Grant will do it. And they said, forget that. Forget that. Get Cary Grant. <laughs> Isn't that shocking? Yeah. Cary Grant was definitely the best. Yeah. Because he's like handsome and charming. And not that Bob Hope and Jack Benny are not. It's just a different vibe. It, it would have changed the movie completely. It's like having Jack Black versus George Clooney for people today. Right? Yep. So like you love Jack Black, you know, he's in the holiday too. He can play a romantic lead. It's just a different flavor, a different taste. Well, and then I, I mean, I'd love to see the original stage play because what was that Mortimer like? Was he good looking? Like, did he have that kind of style? I don't know. Cause I don't know why you would then just make the jump to a Jack Benny or Bob Hope. Again, different flavor. I will say one of my dear friends uh, played the Teddy Roosevelt part in high school. And so when I watch this, I think of him and I just think, oh, you were probably so good in that role. I wish I could have seen you do this. That would be the most fun role to play, I would say. I disagree. And I will tell you why. It takes so much goddamn energy. You have to run up all those stairs yelling charge. You have to lift a body. I would be exhausted every night. If I was in this play, I would just want to be one of the aunties. They're so funny. The little walk that Josephine Hall has, you know how she runs from room to room and it's such a dainty little jaunt. It kills. It's so funny. There was one point where she was like kind of hustling into the kitchen and oh my gosh, her little, yeah, her little waddle or whatever you want to call it. I was like, this woman is too adorable. It's sprightly. It's surprisingly like energetic and sprightly and dainty. Yeah, I would want to be that person if I was in this play for sure. And you get to wear that fabulous black outfit. Everyone looks good in black, right? Everyone looks good in black. I do want to talk about Frank Capra though, because Frank Capra freaking directed this, which is why it's so damn good. I was shocked when I saw that because I, like I said, the last time I saw this movie, I was like 12 or something. So then watching it again the other night, I was like, oh wait, what? Yeah, Frank freaking Capra directed this. And it's different than his other films. It's so much funnier. It's more screwball comedy than yeah. anything else he does. Because he does these very, like, I once called him white bread on the show. I apologize. He does these movies about the everyday hero. Yeah. And they're very, like, what's the word? They're not necessarily epic, but they're very meaningful and very lovely. They're very wholesome. You know, it's about like ideals, about what humanity should be and that kind of stuff. And so to watch him do a screwball comedy about ants that get away with murder <laughs> is just fantastic. And he levels it up. He makes it look chic and classic. And it's, I love it. Again, it is a little slow. It does play like a play. So be prepared for that if you're going to watch it and haven't yet. But yeah, it's a really great piece of work for sure. I feel like the comedy itself though is really quick. Yes. That was my opinion of it. Cause like, like I said before we were recording the, there's so many like one liners in this that I would just like pause it and like crack up and like try to jot down in my notes. Like that's a good one. I love that. Like, yeah. It combines physical comedy with cleverness. Yeah. Cause it's got the one liners. It's got like this extra layer of self-awareness. And then again, like having Boris Karloff play a character that you continually say is Boris Karloff, even if it's on stage and not in the film, that's very clever right so it's it's clever it's got physical comedy and it's kind of spooky and scary you get a little thrill every now and then like the part where uh when the one aunt is going to show the other aunt the body that she had killed earlier because the aunt hadn't seen it yet because mm -hmm. one of them did it on her own they start to lift up the bench seat and uh boris karloff who's not boris karloff raymond massey sticks his head through the window really quickly and you get like a <gasps> like a fright you get, it's like quick and scary so it takes these very small elements of horror and makes them palatable for people like me. When Teddy was uh, taking the, the body from the window seat, it was like pitch black. He was yes. taking the body from the window seat to the, the Panama Canal, the basement. And you see him carrying it. You see the outline of the body, like you said, and it's all backlit because the, you know, the stairs are toward us with the, uh, you know, the light to go downstairs. And then he, I think it's, it must've been by the time he gets past the door, cause you just hear the body fall. It's like rolling down the stairs. That was hilarious. Well, if I'm going to be honest, I wasn't sure if he fell too. There's a part of me that oh, just imagined him falling down the stairs with the body. Toppling. That's what I was picturing. Um, but yeah, so it takes these like really dark, cause that's a creepy moment. Oh yeah. You never really see any of the dead bodies fully. You just see them in shadow or like mm -hmm. the backlit, like the outline. So yeah, it's just this creepy moment that is then immediately followed by comedy, which is then immediately followed by more creepiness. 
Um, and Priscilla Lane getting attacked and Cary Grant getting attacked. They both get attacked and you're like, oh shit, this is getting really scary and really real. And then one second later, it's funny and you forget. You forget that those horrible things could have or were about to happen. Like all those missed uh, missed opportunities with the wine glasses. Like when yes. characters are starting to pour themselves a glass of wine and Cary Grant, he's looking at the camera, he's looking at the, the wine. Are they going to drink it? Are they going to drink it? Will I get out of this? But it turns out even better. Everything works out so perfectly. His brother's going to go away for life. Dr. Einstein is free to go live a better life somewhere. Let's hope he does that. We've got the ants and Teddy going away to a sanitarium and uh, he gets to go have sex with his wife, and hopefully the cab driver gets paid. That's what I wanted for this story. That's the loose end I wanna see tied up. But it couldn't have been paid yet because he had to make the comment about everything being insane and him being like a little teapot or whatever, and he had to make the teapot arms because that's really funny and we have to end on a grown man making teapot arms. And also, does he have nothing better to do than just like wait for these people that may or may not pay him? I think that's probably accurate. We don't know where he's from. If he's from Manhattan, he's civilized. So he's going to just wait forever. The polite gentleman waiting for for his uh, people to come back so he can drive them. I was just remembering, you were saying the thing about the one-liners, and I want you to read the ones that you wrote down. But when they talk about Witherspoon and um, Teddy Roosevelt goes, Mr. Witherfork! And then he goes, spoon, and Cary Grant lifts a spoon off the table. Oh, God, it killed me. It's just so stupid, but so funny. So good. There, there's a lot of ones that you're like, oh, that, that should have been grown worthy, but it just works. Puns that you're still like, I liked that pun. So good. Um, so do you have any one-liners or notes that you want to share with me or read to me? Yeah, so when I guess when they first when he first discovers the body in the window seat, Mortimer, and he's all like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? What's going on? And, and the ants are starting to explain to him, and they're like, well, so matter of fact about it like well yeah i mean there's like 12 others or whatever it was and uh, he goes wait there more than one others <laughs> i just love that he's just like wait wh- what and then they keep going and goes that's first degree fantastic just to see kind of like the the whole moment just kind of build for him and he's like thinking through the problem and he's like wait what's happening okay we need to figure out how to solve this and just yeah. And his level of anxiety, which is so high, and their level of just like total calm. And of course, this is what we've done. Why can't you understand this? Why are you behaving this way? We're doing full of mercy. She's telling him to behave. And then there's a part too where she's like, I would never lie. He's like, yeah. you've killed people. And he's like, yes, but lying is a whole other thing. Yeah, the different sense of morality and ethics. One thing I love is how they kind of structure when the ants are arguing or debating over how many bodies they have really killed. We have that conversation. And then there's the same conversation between Jonathan Brewster and his sidekick of how many bodies is it really? And they have to go over each thing. There are all these similarities between the two that are just so comical. Yeah, as the audience, at least for me, you know, you're seeing these different murderers in different lights, right? So for the ants, I'm like, Oh, I love them. Like, they don't really know what they're doing is wrong. They think what they're doing is right, actually. That they're doing something good for humanity and for these lonely old men. Yes. And then the antithesis of that is to see these kind of creepy looking dudes who are just like going around murdering people or one of them I and torturing yeah yeah murdering and, and, and torturing and, and you're like well clearly what they're doing is wrong yeah and I feel like the writers definitely did that on purpose obviously like you want to draw these parallels but as the audience you feel more secure with what the ants are doing I guess it's a perfect contrast and it's so ambiguous. And I love that, especially in a lot of stuff from the past when like right always has to win. And like, yeah, I love that there's a question of like, well, we do want them to get away with it. They're, they're really lovely. And yes, what they were doing was terrible, but it is different than what the serial killer that enjoys killing people was doing. And they enjoy killing people too. That's also fucked up. But when they talk about, he just had that happiest smile on his face and we wanted to bring that happy smile to all the other sad, lonely old men. I just, that thought process. But their proper endings, they end up where they belong, right? They are clearly not sane and they end up in the mental institution. If that's the appropriate term, if it's not, I apologize. And then, um, yeah, uh, Raymond Massey slash Boris Karloff does get to go to prison, hopefully forever and never. After like a a knockout fight with the cops. Oh my God. (laughs) Which was also very hilarious. 
It was really funny. The part where Cary Grant gives up, there's just a giant brawl happening in front of him. He's still sort of tied up. And he just goes to the side stairs and you see him through the banister and he's just smoking his cigarette and he asks for the phone and during the fight, someone hands it to him and he goes, higher, please. And they raise it higher. That was the best. Because who was it? Uh, Johnny had like raised the phone like he was going to hit the cops with it, but it just happened to be right next to Cary Grant. He's like, oh, thanks. I didn't understand till right now that he was going to hit the cops with it. I thought he just like heard a request and was having a human response of following through it the request. I know. I totally read it as like he was about to hit the cops with it. I'm like, oh, great. He was taking his damn time with it, though. You're correct. I'm incorrect. That's a fact. Um, Yeah, that was a great moment. Those little asides. And when they think that Mortimer's crazy in the end and he has to prove they're just not getting it. They're so incompetent. Oh, man. Okay. Do you have any other uh, one-liners that you wanted to share before we wrap this up? One that I thought was just fantastic was uh, between Mortimer and Elaine, his his now wife. And she, she walks in and, and, you know, he's all frazzled because he found out about the murders and stuff. And she goes, but darling, Niagara Falls. And he says, it does? Let it. I just love that. It's so quick. And you get the sense that he really is not taking in what she's saying. And that's his first reaction. He's not thinking honeymoon. He's thinking, oh, Niagara, it's falling. What? I really enjoyed that. So our double feature segment is here. And you're making me realize I don't think that there's a perfect double feature for this. I would say like Young Frankenstein would be a really fun double feature with this because it's also a movie that handles the horror genre, but in a comedic way. So I would probably say that... But I'm trying to think if there's any other, like maybe Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, like those would be fun. Anything that blends comedy and horror, I think would be a really good mix with this. Yeah, those would probably be my two. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any, like even more recent ones that could be potentially a double feature. Because I feel like the horror comedy genre itself has just like completely morphed. I think in the 21st century, like I've seen a lot of really, really great comedy horror. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot more of this horror comedy genre now, but it's different than like horror screwball comedy. True, that's true. But screwball comedies don't even exist anymore. They're not even really a genre themselves. I feel like a lot of people probably think it's like lower humor now, right? The screwball comedies. Like, I don't know, not to call anyone out, but like an Adam Sandler one might be considered more screwball than... Well, but I almost feel like this is so clever. Like those have a lot of poop fart humor, right? And so this doesn't have poop fart humor. It just has like physical humor with cleverness. But I do get that it's a different time. It's hard to capture that. And some dad jokes for sure. And some dad jokes for sure. I wonder if they thought they were dad jokes back then or if they thought they were really funny. They must have known and laughed like we did. Now I've got more one-liners in my back pocket if I ever need them. Exactly. Keep them ready. Um, I do want to talk about Priscilla Lane before we go, though, because we didn't really talk about her. Priscilla Lane, I didn't know this about her because I didn't know much about her. I haven't seen a ton of her films. She was in a Hitchcock film, Saboteur. She got the part because Barbara Stanwyck couldn't do it, which I think is funny. She ended up being in The Meanest Man in the World with Jack Benny, who was considered for this. Her other movies that were big look like Four Daughters. There was another movie that also had daughter's name and I didn't write it down, and Silver Queen. And apparently she came up as a sister act. So the reason she started being in movies was because she was in a band with her sisters. They were in the Fred Waring band, and they were singers, and there were like five of them. And two of her other sisters also ended up being in movies with her. Um, She ended up being the most famous and successful of the bunch. But she was in a movie where her sister played the bad guy with her. It was like she was the good girl and her sister was the bad girl. Oh, that's awesome. I think that's great. So yeah, she she was a singer and she came up that way. We haven't really talked about Cary Grant in that respect too, but Cary Grant, I mean, he's he's very famous. I'm sure you all know about him at home, but I love his little backstory of he had a really rough childhood. He ended up being expelled from school for just like not giving a shit and being really disruptive. But he ended up touring with a company. He learned how to stilt walk. (laughs) And he was like part of a circus company. And that was how he knows all this physical comedy stuff. And that's why he can do all these crazy tumbling tricks with his body because he was part of like a sort of circus performing act that traveled the, the world. That's how he ended up in the United States. And then he ended up doing vaudeville and theater and Broadway and getting discovered and doing pictures. So we have Cary Grant because of, like, the circus entertainer world. I had no clue. And his real name is Archie Leach. I love it. I will always love that. 
Archibald Alec Leach. Wasn't there an Archibald buried in the cemetery? Or no, I'm thinking of Hocus Pocus. Sorry. Oh, we were watching it yesterday. (laughs) That would be a great movie to watch with this too, though, because it also combines a lot of solid fun with some moments of getting a little bit scared or like looking at the tropes of things. We've got the horror trope where, is someone looking through this thing? It's his sister! But then you really do get scared. Like when Sarah Jessica Parker, you don't know it's her, and they run upstairs and they're like, Danny! And they pull the cover back and it's Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah. Scary. If you haven't seen Hocus Pocus, you're very confused now. But you should go watch that too in general because it's the best Halloween movie. I just want to read some Cary Grant movies so we can just really process this. Cary Grant was in so many good movies, it's just stupid. And again, he may have been abusive, and that sucks, and pretty much everyone from the past, I think, probably sucked. They all had abusive upbringings, and then the abuse came out in other ways, so that sucks. But anyway, here we are. He was in Charade, great movie, To Catch a Thief, North by Northwest, His Girl Friday, An Affair to Remember, The Bishop's Wife, Notorious, Suspicion, Talk of the Town, The Philadelphia Story, Gunga Din, Holiday, Bringing Up Baby, I'm no angel, she done him wrong, etc., etc. Those are just some of his movies. Amazing. His career is fantastic. I think this is like one of my favorite roles of his, though, if I'm being perfectly honest. It stresses me out a little, I'm not going to lie, because he's so high strung and gets so freaked out about everything, which makes sense. But then I'm watching it, and I get stressed and freaked out about everything. I pick up his energy. Like I said earlier, though, his reactions are just on point. Like I said, like when his eyes bug out, when he, he's like, oh my gosh, there's a body in the window seat. It's just like, can't be beat. Because we are him. And he's showing us the reaction that they should be having and how big a deal these things really are. (sighs) He's the voice of reason. And you're right, his eyes are so expressive. It's not even just his eyes, because it's his whole demeanor. But we see his whole thought process with every beat, with every moment. When he falls over that chair too, that was a great, funny, comedic moment. And also, they have a moment lingering where his tush is just up in the air. And I was like, did you do that for all the women at home? Thank you. On behalf of all of us ladies, we really appreciate seeing Cary Grant's tush in the air. Thank you. Yes. Not to be, what's the word, like creepy or sexist, right? I was to say it, but he was like a sex symbol. Yeah, he's got a cute tush. And he made sure that we all saw it. I think he did a public service. I would agree with that. All right. Oh. I didn't say um, the Frank Capra movie. So for anyone that doesn't know, Frank Capra directed It's a Wonderful Life. He directed It Happened One Night. He directed Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Meet John Doe, You Can't Take It With You, which this kind of, since that's a play that adapts really well for screen, this has that vibe too. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. He directed all these wonderful movies and he directed this as well. And I wrote down Mortimer Brewster's books, The Bachelor's Bible, among many others. I did also like that they they start off the movie with a joke. They let us know the tone. So since we start off with that like jokey placard about like Halloween in Brooklyn, anything can happen. And then with the placards, they even tell jokes. So there's one where it's like, you're on your own from here. Yeah. That sets us up for the tone. And I love that. Like you said earlier, just when it gets like too dark or too creepy or whatever, like with dead bodies and they just immediately break it with comedy. So well timed so well-timed and I'm a son of a sea cook I wrote because that was one of the lines if you were like Sarah do you remember any lines it would have probably been that one he says it twice the relief that he got from that I was kind of like but these are the people that raised you so you you can't discount all that he was just like oh thank god I'm not gonna be crazy then or my kids won't be crazy like calm down these people are good people well let me take that back now yeah, I think it was justified. I feel like I would be relieved to find out I'm not related to a bunch of murderers, but they still loved him. He still loves them. The scene, too, where the ants each want to kiss on their cheek from him, I was like, that's adorable. He kisses one ant's cheek and the other ant goes, I was scared, too. And she leans forward and he kisses her. That was so cute. They're really cute old ladies, honestly. They're really cute. And actually, elderberry wine sounds great, and I would love to drink it. Sounds delicious. But not with arsenic. Hold the arsenic, please. Hold the arsenic and cyanide and strychnine. We just want the elderberry wine yeah and the one moment when he went to the judge's house he says don't tell my aunts that you're lonely and then he also says wait do you drink and the judge is like no i don't drink well sometimes wine and then he's like don't ever drink wine it was great so i think christina we covered it all we did everything we did it we did i think you're right and then oh i wanted to mention though there were multiple remakes because i did google this and i was really yeah apparently well, at least there's some that have been filmed. I don't know if they're necessarily films themselves, but maybe a film oh. 
of a theatrical performance kind of thing? Potentially. Like, there was one in 1962 and one in 1969. I have no idea if they were, like, filmed theatrical productions or actual movie remakes or what. I had no idea. I only knew about this one. Because I was Googling it to find out where to watch it. And then, like, there's one that's free right now on Amazon Prime. I think it's the 1962 one. And I was like, well, gotta make sure I don't watch that one on accident. Oh, God, if you had, I would have been like, um, I don't think that's the right one. I'm gonna guess they're not as good. Oh, I also noticed that the last, like, placard that they showed was a witch riding away. And I was like, what the hell did that have to do with this movie? Oh, my God. I thought the same thing. I was like, but the the crazy old ladies weren't witches. Are you you calling us witches? What the hell's that? Or is she a witch for getting him to marry her? Is that what you're saying with that card? Yeah, I don't. I think they just were like, it's Halloween. Here's a spooky Halloween thing. Oh, wait, and one more thing. I wish I wasn't remembering all these at the end. But they're celebrating Halloween, and the kids show up at their window in the kitchen, and instead of candy, because I guess they didn't do that back then, they give them, like, pie and, like, real pumpkins. And I was like, is that what they used to do on Halloween? No idea. And what a weird place to be getting your trick-or-treaters stuff. I, I mean, I guess the kitchen makes sense because that's where your pies are, but like, they don't go to the front they door. They had their weird masks on. Yeah, they don't go to the front door. There was no real candy. And I'm like, when did we start doing the real candy thing? When was, when did that become a thing? When the candy companies caught on. Just like Hocus Pocus full circle. Everyone knows Halloween was invented by the candy companies. Oh, Max. There you go. Full circle for us. Not for the viewers at home, just for us. This, Hocus Pocus was the sequel to Arsenic and Old Lace. I get it. As we all know. Then the witch placard would have made sense at the end. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was delightful talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. Uh